Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 124. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. After a long wait, here we are. The long-awaited discussion of 2020's live-action remake of Mulan. And I say long-awaited because it was long-awaited for so many reasons. I don't need to rehash everything that happened last year, but this film's release got delayed so many times and eventually gets released on Disney Plus on September 4th as premium content. Uh, We have a lot to say about everything here. Starting, I think, you know, starting from the fact that it is premium content, and then, of course, discussing the film, but there's so much build-up to this movie that this is one of those episodes that we're doing that I feel like, of all of the shows that we've done, I feel like this is the one that's been, like, the most anticipated, you know, like for a long time. I don't think we've had one that's been quite this anticipated. And see, I feel like we're ripping a Band-Aid because you are predisposed to hate this film just because of the premium content issue. Listen, we're ripping a Band-Aid, make no doubt about it. Um, And I haven't even gotten into the movie yet. Um, But I think that because we've been so vocal, and and for those who haven't heard us yet, we'll kind of just go over that quickly before we go into the film here. We have been so vocal, really, since they announced that this was going to be premium content, that I feel like... The feedback I've received has been, we really can't wait to actually A, see the movie, and B, hear what you have to say about it. So the fact that it is premium content, let me just throw this out there now because I do want to get this out of the way. When Disney Plus was announced years ago, before we had anything, they said it was basically going to be a place where you could go and get Disney content. At a low monthly price. And they said that they were not going to upsell you on anything. And I understand 2020 being the year that it was, and they had to recoup something because none of their theatrical releases really were able to get into theaters. But this really rubbed me the wrong way. And I think you felt the same way as well, that they did make this a premium content. I understand the pivot. I get it. Every company had to do it. Every company had to figure out a way to recoup. And I don't fault Disney for that. Where I do fault them is that they did the thing that they promised they were never going to do. If they released this as premium content on Hulu, I would have been fine with that. But I feel like Disney Plus was kind of a sacred thing. And I feel like this left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. I mean, we said we were... We were never going to pay for it, just on principle. But because it's two of us, we don't have kids. The $30 isn't worth it. I understand where people did buy into it because for a family of four, $30 is cheaper than taking them to see this in the theater. So I I totally understand. Um, But I just feel like it wasn't really fair Because pandemic aside, this was such a highly anticipated film. They announced the live action remake so early on. They took a year alone 
to cast Mulan and find the actress that was going to play her. This film has been hyped for so long and it wasn't really fair that it had to be pushed back, but it also wasn't fair to capitalize on it either. Right. I mean, and the other thing, mind you, is that you're not going to get a lot of theatrical releases this year for films that were shot last year. A lot of what you're getting released this year is stuff that was supposed to get released last year. Sure. James Bond still hasn't been released. Ghostbusters Afterlife still hasn't been released. I hadn't heard about that one. Mm. Well, the point is, though, so many other films got pushed that, and and I think, you know, Disney, they could have just as easily done that. There was no reason, in my opinion, that this needed to get put onto the service as a premium buy. Especially when you think about they bumped up Frozen when mm-hmm. they first announced the shutdown and they just gave it to us to give people something to do. Right. Uh, and then onward, same thing. They just gave it to us. Right. And my thing is, it's very hard to go back once you've done something. Yes. And now you're seeing it with Wonder Woman 1984, where it got a theatrical release. Now, obviously, movie theaters are not open everywhere. I understand that. California is in shutdown forever. So I understand the desire to do a parallel uh, release between theatrical and streaming. But now that you've done it, you're never going to not do it. So I, and I know you, have been very vocal about how this will affect the movie-going experience. I think that this changes everything. I don't think it necessarily changes everything in a positive way. I think you're going to see the death of a lot of movie theaters because this is going to become the normal. Because, mind you something, it's not just, you know, we're talking about you and I. We grew up in an era long before streaming where you had to go to a movie theater to see a film. You now have a younger generation that is going to be raised on, well, going to the movies is something that we don't do because a new movie comes out and I watch it at home. And those that generation is going to grow up and they're going to have children. And, and there's, there's a lineage here that I think becomes very dangerous for movie theaters, and it starts with things like this. And this is where I get very concerned. And honestly, the, the sad fact of the matter is you're going to have a generation of children 20 years from now that will never set foot in a movie theater and they're not going to know what that experience is like seeing a film on a massive screen and having that nice hot buttered popcorn and and we've waxed poetic or at least I have about being at you know at the at the screening for Avengers Endgame on opening night these are experiences that are going to go out the window forget about all the people that are not going to have work anymore at the movie theaters it just to me Call me old-fashioned. Going to the movies is something that's still exciting to me, and I feel like people are going to be cheated out of that opportunity moving forward. I agree with 90% of what you said, and I have been very vocal about my fear about the death of my industry, the industry that I work in, so I follow this very closely, and I am very concerned. However, I feel like there is sort of a silver lining. I work... You know, we talk about it all the time at the Hamptons Film Festival. It's a seasonal job. I love doing it. And we went virtual this year. And one of the problems that 
we found is that one person would buy the film and then they would have a screening in their backyard. Now, forget about the irresponsibility of having a social gathering that large. You're also paying for it once. So I think once studios start to realize that, that they're losing almost like let's let's call it on average a family of four it's like a three to one ratio where one person is buying for it and you're losing three ticket sales I think once they see that start to happen they're going to figure out a way to act around it or we could see you know the movie theater going experience come full circle and be what it used to be where you dress up for the evening and it would be a huge event almost go like going to see a Broadway play it could be. I think that the AMC dine-ins that we have, certainly I think there's a market for that um, where you kind of try to get everybody in and have an experience. The The other thing, and the flip side is, like you just mentioned, um, losing out on gate, losing out on box office yes. because somebody paid for one viewing and showed it to 10 people. Well, here's the easy workaround. It's 75 bucks. You want to watch a movie? Ooh. 75 bucks. Because this is what has happened with pay-per-view. When I was a kid. Right. Okay, like with the with, with the WWF, fighting, the MMA fights. Yeah. When yeah. I would watch WWF as a kid, I remember the first time WrestleMania, I want to say it was WrestleMania 14. So we're talking the mid-90s, like 1996, 1997. I remember when that was 29.95 and my parents would not pay for it my brother and i had to operate a lemonade stand for the weekend to watch wrestlemania that's great parenting it is but their point of view then was that's exorbitant well now premium content for for mulan $30 right but as as we've gone on now these pay-per-views that were 29.99 20 years ago are now $70. So I can see, yes, there's, there's, you know, there's validity to what you're saying, but the, the pencil pushers who care about making money, are going to figure out the workaround. And the workaround is you want to watch, you want to watch, um, Oh, let's see. Let's, uh, you want to watch Cruella, Cruella, that's 75 bucks. And that, that's the easy workaround for that. No. And it's a legitimate concern, but think about it. What happened when everything became an expensive pay-per-view? The WWE launched their own network. Where and that was years later. It took years to get to that point. We're already ten steps ahead because everything is already at the point of streaming. Correct, but here's what WWE did that Disney Plus is not doing. You don't have to pay for premium content. Right. You're nine ninety nine a month. And listen, folks, whether you like wrestling or not, you cannot overlook what the WWE did when they launched that network because they have now set the standard for everybody. I'll go on record right now. The New York Yankees will not be on television five years from now. Yes, network will be a streaming service that you will have to pay for. That is going to happen. You did say that about six months ago. Not on the show, but you you called it, and I think you're right. When they got pulled from Sling, when they got pulled from Hulu, when they got pulled from YouTube, they started getting pulled from all of these streaming services after the Yankees bought Yes back from Disney. Because remember, they Disney acquired Yes in the Fox deal and then sold it back to the Yankees. They are, they are pivoting themselves to be a streaming-only thing. This is going to become a new normal. 
So that's the difference between Disney Plus and the WWE. Disney Plus gets your, you know, six ninety nine soon to be seven ninety nine a month, but they're still going to whack you for premium content, and that's the problem that I have with what they did here. So now that we've gone on about that, and <laughs> if I you're feel still good, with us, if you're still with us, but I think it is a worthwhile conversation to have. Um, I'm I'm glad I got that off my chest, and I promise that until the next time they do it, <laughs> it'll be the last time I complain or voice my opinion about at least Mulan being premium content. $30 a month, uh, $30 additional to what you were paying for your $9.99 a month. Oh, here's the other thing. The 30 bucks. do you know, it, you didn't buy the movie. You buy the movie you for, rented as long, it. for as long as you have Disney+. Plus. The minute you cancel your subscription, boom, the movie's gone. Well, technically, I'm not even looking at it as that. I'm looking at it as you purchased it for three months because then it became available to you for free. Yeah. So, the question now, was it worth $30? to watch it on September 4th. That is, I think that's the question that will be answered by the end of this episode. So, look, we're not going to sit here and rehash the entire plot. We did review the original animated Mulan back on episode number 81. I will put it in the show notes. You can go back and listen to that there. For the sake of saving time, because I went on my diatribe here, let's just talk about the film that we have here in 2020's Mulan because there are some things that are similar but there are an awful lot of things that are different and a lot of them were hot takes and hot button conversations such as the lack of the fact or, or such as the lack of musical numbers in this film let's get down to business Ugh. oh come on you know I had to I yeah but you know I was holding out hope <laughs> I should have known better at this point well, no, I do think that this is a good place to start. I don't want to say that it's the elephant in the room, but I think it was one of the most anticipated elements is, is this a musical or not? Because when they released the trailer, you heard the the melody for I'll Make a Man Out of You. Uh, and they, you know, before the film, they had Christina Aguilera re-release Reflection, and then she did the new song, Loyal, Brave, and True. Um, so because they were hitting the music so heavy, I think that was a legitimate question. I know a lot of people wondered, and based on the first trailer, you're right, there was a lot of speculation, but I mean, aesthetically, you look at the first trailer, I mean, I, I'm just going to ask the dumb question, did you really think it was going to be a musical? I mean, just look at what you saw in the initial trailer. How in the world could that be a musical? And if it was, how could it be taken seriously? That was the point that I was going to make, is that I think that was a very smart choice to scrap the music and go for more of an action-adventure film and, and go for a lot more of a serious tone. Yeah, I mean, look, this isn't Lady and the Tramp. This isn't Aladdin. It's not The Lion King. It's, it's not supposed to be more of that whimsy that you see with, with talking animals and... That'll lead to an entire other conversation in a few minutes, I'm sure. But I am so glad I did not have to listen to Make a Man Out of You again. I said it when we reviewed the show on episode 81, and I'll say it again now. I think that song is one of the most overrated songs in the Disney catalog. Wrong. 
you're you're you couldn't be more wrong about that. I don't need Donny Osmond telling me he's going to make a man out of me. <laughs> I said it then and I'll say it again. Well, no, I certainly think that would have cheapened especially this sequence here. But I don't you know, it's not like Aladdin where the genie really carries the film in so many ways where you get away with that type of whimsy. It just would have done absolutely nothing here. Uh, so I think that that was a good call as far as making changes. Let's talk about a few of the other changes that are set up right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, they start with the family living in this village, which is like these two really large circular structures it's almost like apartments yeah um and they're beautiful i think the aesthetic is absolutely gorgeous and i love the way that they shot it with so many bright colors but you lose the status of the fa family meaning that in the animated film mulan is not a princess she's not born into royalty this is taking place you know during the chinese dynasty so we're not following the royal family. Um, but you do learn that her father was sort of a war hero. And just based on their home and the property that they live on, you kind of get the idea that they're a bit more well off. It gives Mulan that fish out of water quality and sets up that she doesn't feel like she belongs. So immediately you're losing that char- character development with her. Um, although I feel like it does give us more of a plausible reason that her father would be called on to join the army because I feel like in the animated one, he's already proven himself. I feel like he's portrayed as a little bit older here. I think it sort of gives us more of an emotional quality that they'd be showing up to call him back in. Uh, All right. So here's, here's the thing. First, I agree with you. I think the sets, and I think this holds true for the entire film. I think the sets, uh, the sets are stunning. Um, they're they're one of the best parts about the movie. Um, when it comes to how they portray the father going into the military again, I think you're right. I think putting them in this more communal environment where they're living in such a smaller space makes a lot more sense. I think it also helps the story along where, you know, you've got the father who obviously is, he's been injured in war. Um, You see it, you see how he struggles. You see, especially in the scene where when they call on, every family will send one male and he leaves the cane behind and he slowly walks up and explains, I've been blessed with two daughters, I will fight. And they almost seemed reluctant to give him that paperwork. Like, I feel like there would have been an out for him. He chose not to take it. Exactly. So I think that, like you're saying, to build emotion, it works. And putting them in that setting works even more. What doesn't work, though, is that it sort of renders the matchmaker obsolete because in a village that small, doesn't everybody know each other? I mean, wouldn't you be almost betrothed based on your age from yeah. from when you're born? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like if they had leaned into the matchmaker with the sister, who's a new character, Mulan was an only child in the animated one, um, 
I feel like the matchmaker would have been better served to focus it on the sister. And then, you know, Mulan could have voiced her strong opinion about that not being the same path. Because that was something that I harped on quite a bit when we reviewed the animated film is that Mulan is not only going to war to take her father's place, but they do such a good job of setting up that she knows she doesn't fit in in this world and she knows that she can't fill the shoes that her family wants her to. So they raised the stakes so much and gave her so much conviction when she decided to go. Here, I feel like it was just about saving her father and not becoming who she was meant to. Um, especially when, you know, they've got such an interesting family dynamic now that she does have a good relationship with her father. So, okay, fine. That's a good jumping off point that she doesn't want him to go. She wants to save his life. And they really do wait. You know, the mother says that he's not coming back this time. Like yeah. they, they know it's going to, it's not going to end well. And they really do give it so much more gravity, uh, when he's getting ready to leave. But it's just interesting that the mother is trying to crush her. And we see it earlier on because they start Mulan very young. It doesn't open with the matchmaker like the animated one does. And I, I get that's a change eliminating the music, but I feel like a lot of really good character development went out the window with that song. I think this falls victim to, we need to show them as a child. So many films now... Yeah go into this, we need to show them as a child. I've pointed out before, the Halloween, the the Rob Zombie Halloween the remake. Worst. The I worst. I need to, I mean, you see Michael Myers a little bit as a child in the John Carpenter film, and it's just enough because I don't need that peek behind the curtain. I don't need you to explain the human condition of, well, here's everything else that happened as a child, and let's get into the child psyche. I don't think you needed that with Mulan. You did not need to tell us that she was different than all the other kids, that she was different from all the other girls, that she was always rebellious, especially because as a child, she's too out of control. Yes, agreed. This whole scene where she goes after the chicken and she breaks the wing off the phoenix and she slides off the tile roof. Where this film loses me a lot of the time is the lack of subtlety and where they do go over the top, like the matchmaker scene. We'll discuss that a little bit further in a minute here where I feel like, and and listen, I did not love Mulan, the original one, but I felt like it was more polished than a lot of the scenes here where I felt like they went for it too hard, too fast. I mean, it's a really cool scene where she's running around and doing all of these tricks. Um, and I like that it's sort of a hat tip to all these older kung fu movies. I think that was really cool. And I don't think it went too over the top. But what bothered me about it, and I figured you were you were going to be on the same page here, is that everyone is telling her to stop. And she's just so out of control. I don't mind the the flips and the gymnastics and all that even though it is a little bit overdone uh to me it's more egregious that that she's just so defiant and she's old enough to know better that's exactly. the other thing it's like exactly. we talked about 
the child that was climbing the wall. That's exactly what I was thinking. At Ohana on our last big Disney trip. And I'll link I'll link that episode in the show notes too. We did a little recap. And and our big gripe was the kids old enough to know better. This isn't Mulan as as a four or five year old. I'd say she's what, seven or eight? Still a child where she's going to have a ton of energy, but enough where she should know better, especially considering the fact that she does come from a very structured family. I understand you're trying to create her as the rebel, but I just find it hard to believe that this child behaving this way, being this defiant, came from that family. Exactly. The only place where you get a little bit of a payoff is when the mom has the conversation with her father about, you know, you don't have a son, you have a daughter. And as much as you appreciate all of these character traits of Mulan, that she is almost filling the shoes of a son, she can't behave this way anymore and she needs to learn to take her place. So then when you have that conversation when she's still a very young child and her father talks about hiding her chi, it is very much soul crushing. And I feel like she's almost too young to sort of bear that weight because even though they do come from a very regimented family and, and Mulan is in a very regimented upbringing, there's still the part of me that wants to sit back and say, let the kid be a kid, even though she was far too out of control. There, there could be a happy medium, I think. The other thing that I would have liked more, and it doesn't pay off, I like the line where she has to tell him, you have a daughter and not a son. Where they should have gone with that previously is um, her father... You could you, you don't really know how proud he is because he's obviously suppressing it. What I would have liked to have seen, and you've seen it in movies before, especially when you have the father with the tomboy daughter, is right. where um where other people are sort of looking down on it and the father puts on the facade, but the minute nobody's looking, he smiles and gives her the little wink. Yes, yes. Like I think like you get it in Natty Gan, right? Natty Gan There you go. Natty and her father, like there's a perfect example. I would have liked to have seen that here where he is privately encouraging this and it's not until her mother says we need to stop this because she'll bring disgrace onto the family with the matchmaker where then he kind of changes his tune. I feel like this movie starts to develop somebody and then they drop it. Right. And again, that would have raised the stakes as to why she wants to go for herself because she's got something to prove and not just to save her father. And that was also something that when we reviewed the animation, I was I I praised a lot was that they didn't make her a tomboy. They just made her awkward. And and it's just a good setup that she doesn't feel like she has to do this for anyone but herself. Um yeah, and with all of that being said, you lose the character development and you lose, to me, what is a really great scene. I love the matchmaker scene. I love how tongue-in-cheek that song is in the animation. And again, I don't necessarily care about the song, but it just does such a great job of 
setting up not only the shoes that Mulan has to fill, but all of the stereotypes that she doesn't want to fit into about what a woman's place is. Um, I, I feel like the matchmaker scene gets glossed over here with the stupid spider thing uh-huh. where the sister's afraid and Mulan's trying to do the right thing by by hiding it. Um, it it just watered it down so much, which is a shame because the the set is beautiful. Mulan's matchmaker costume, I think, is beautiful. That yes. they got right as far as bringing the animation to life. Uh, but this scene should be so much stronger than it is. This entire thing to me is ridiculous. I think the setup for it was kind of lousy. I, you know, the throwaway line where as children, the sister is, is afraid of spiders. <laughs> I mean, that's eh, okay, fine. But other than that, you get this huge spider, and this is not like a this is not a tiny spider that like only Mulan and her sister would have noticed. You get this huge spider that comes down almost in the middle of the table, and the CGI is absolutely terrible. And you have people that are more or less sitting in a circle, and there's five of them there, so three of them don't see this huge spider come down onto the table, right. start crawling across the table. I don't know why she couldn't have just pointed out that she trapped a spider under the teapot. When she pulls it off, the -the over-the-top scream from her sister. Who's already seen it. Who's already seen it. The -the over-the-top jump. I've never seen a spider other than Peter Parker jump like this. (laughs) The uh, rear end over elbow, feet over the head, back goes the chair, kicks the table, everything's flying. They didn't do this in the cartoon quite as badly as they do it here. It's just ridiculous. No, and then they do have the whimsical element where she does manage to catch everything. And as far-fetched as that is, it still works because it is, again, the hat tip to the kung fu movies that sort of did this with the elaborate gymnastics. So that that all works for me. What doesn't is, is exactly as you said. There's five people. One of you couldn't have grabbed the teapot as she's balancing it and, and the little teacups on toothpicks. You couldn't have taken that from her so she didn't have to hold that pose. And she has to fall down and break everything. See, I feel like she could have caught everything and done these kung fu moves that clearly her military father has taught her and she's harnessed in her chi, that would have been enough where they could have pointed out, this is not proper. Thanks for saving the teapot, but this is still not proper behavior. This is not becoming of a lady. You know, this is really what the matchmaker is trying to teach her. And instead, they had to get her to fall down. (laughs) She fell and broke the teapot. (laughs) Like, it's just, the whole thing is stupid. I'm sorry, that, that might not, that might be crass and sort of uncouth, but this entire thing is just stupid. No, but the way you said it, too, and I realize that you're yucking it up, but you just likened it to Goofy. Yeah. And that's what it that's what you expect to see with that that you know, that sound that he makes when he's falling. We all know that goofy noise that I'm not even gonna a att- goofy holler. We'll just call it the yeah, goofy holler. Yeah, there we go. I'm not even gonna attempt it. But that's what the scene awa- equates to and your only takeaway from it is that not only that she doesn't fit in cuz we've already proven that, but that 
that she hasn't been squashed out of her. And there were a million other ways to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, this, to me, is where the movie starts to fall apart, which is a shame because up to this point, I felt that the pacing was actually quite good and that yeah. they, they didn't waste a lot of time getting really into the action, really the meat of the film. They didn't spend too much time with backstory because I feel like with these live-action remakes, it's it's assumed you've seen the original, so I don't know that you necessarily need to waste a lot of time, which is why I don't need to see her as a child. They do a good job getting you right into it. and when When the point of the film is really showing you the training sequences and the beautiful cinematography and the beautiful landscape. Like this is where, this is the point that you want to get to. Right. And I could have lived with all of the changes, even though you were sort of regressing when it comes to the development, it was all working, but yes, here is where it really starts to fall apart. When the father's getting ready to leave, there's so much more emotion in this scene because they added a conversation between them. In the animated one, it's basically the, and they do, as you said, in the animated one, get you to the to the training and the action so much faster because the matchmaking scene falls apart. Her family's mad at her. She goes to her ancestors. She basically leaves almost in that same night. Here, there's a very heavy goodbye scene almost. And I don't know if in that moment she knew that she was going to take her father's place just yet, if she had already made her decision. So I think that's something that they balanced really well. Cause as you said, it's assumed we've seen the animated one. We know what she's going to do, but I think that they did a very good job here of sort of making it seem like a last minute decision because she's crying and he he really is planning to leave. He's getting all his stuff together and he doesn't necessarily have that same heart to heart with Mulan. Yeah. So I again, things they do very well, but a lot of missed opportunities. Right, because the other big thing that happens in the sequence in the animation and it was in every trailer and Basically, any time you see any clip of Mulan, when she chops off her hair. That's, yeah. that's the equivalent of missing the chandelier in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, because quite honestly, and I'm jumping ahead here, but I'm just going to address this. I said in the animated film, how do you not know this is a female? I don't know how it isn't completely clear that she is a she and not a he and how nobody caught on to this because they make such a big deal about no women here no women here this is a men's thing and I understand that's the point of the movie is you know for her to step up and and show everybody that a female can do everything that a man can but it but that that's that's how the movie pays off in the end when she gets to military training she cannot blend in as a female as she looks in this film. I know they dirty her up and they play up on the she's not showering because she doesn't want to be exposed, which you do get in the first film. But I think you're right. Her not cutting off her hair, it leaves a lot to be desired here. I think 
she stands out even more as a female posing as a male than she did in the animated version. No, and they do try to pay it off because once she goes into battle as herself, as Mulan, her hair is down. But it's like, was it worth sacrificing that moment to have her in slow motion with these long flowing locks on the horse? I don't know. I mean, I I get that that's her moment and she's been struggling this whole time, which is something that they sort of added with being loyal, brave. And she knows that she has both of those qualities, but truth is the third one. And I get that that was her big character moment when she realizes that she's not going to hide who she is anymore. But I feel like we didn't need her hair down to portray that, especially when, that comes so much later in this version of the film. It's like in your third act. Meanwhile, in the animated one, it's the end of the first act where she embraces who she is and she decides to go. And that's what I'm talking about is that she already knows she doesn't fit in. And when she leaves in the animation, she is doing it for herself. Yes, for her father. But I would say it's about a 50-50 split. Here, it's about 90% for her father. And I feel like keeping the hair chop would have done so much more in this moment. It's a tremendous character moment, and it's completely lacking here. Another big change that you have in this that you don't have in the original film is this phoenix, right? The phoenix, I think, takes the place of Mushu, but I don't know whether the phoenix is really there or whether it's a vision in her head. Either way, I don't know that it's really necessary. I, I get what they're... Now, maybe that's not for me to say because I know that they were trying to be very respectful of the Chinese culture, which is what a lot of people actually took issue with. Um, and I don't know enough about it, and I'm not well-educated enough that I'm going to discuss it at length. But I know that there a lot of the controversy surrounding this movie, especially in the Chinese market, was that it was not totally accurate culturally, and they took a lot of issue with that. So perhaps it's not for me to say that the Phoenix shouldn't have been there, but I don't know that it necessarily worked. I I think it's better than a talking dragon for a live action film, but I don't think she necessarily needed it because I felt like while you're trying to show the importance of family and relatives and tradition, it's more opportunity to take away from her. Like, I feel like she is not motivated for herself in this film nearly as much as she is in the original animated film. And you've pointed that out at nauseum already. And we're not. She thanks. But I'm saying, though, we have not, technically speaking, we haven't even gotten her into basic training yet. And you've really watered down what is otherwise a strong character in the original film. Right. And to both of your points, I feel like that comes from eliminating the music and making this a more tonally serious film. With regard to The Phoenix, did I think it was going to talk? No, absolutely not. Did I think we were going to even have Mushu in this film? Absolutely not. Um, But... As far as the watered-down character goes, I think that that comes from not only losing 
the music where there's that big conflict about hiding who she really is, you're losing a lot of your humor too. Because by establishing Mulan as wanting to go into battle for herself in the animated one, her biggest thing is not that she's afraid. It's her, her biggest thing is concealing her identity and not, not that she's hiding it from herself, but she really has to hide it from everyone else. And they really lean into that for the comedy of this film, like with the gang of three, which we are going to talk about. Um, But that humor comes out in the scenes, like you said, like with the skinny dipping or the song, a girl worth fighting for by losing those. Yes, she does have to conceal her body from from the the rest of the men at training camp but she's she's wrestling with herself about stepping stepping into who she's becoming as opposed to I know who I am and my biggest thing is just making sure that they don't find out and that's where it does feel watered down because you're we we already knew who she was now she doesn't know anymore we don't know anymore and we're taking that journey with her and it's not nearly as funny and not that it had to be but what makes the animated film so enjoyable is completely gone during this point i think that this film did not need to be funny i don't think that the i don't think the structure of this film is naturally funny. I don't think it's meant to be. And I kind of feel like they put the phoenix in so that they could give Mulan wings at the end of the movie because isn't that visual really cool? I, I, at times I feel like that's the only reason why this phoenix is in this movie. I agree. The other thing that I could have done without is the witch. Why is the Scarlet Witch in this movie? Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about watering it down. Here is where, and again, like I said, I don't think we needed Mushu, but if we're going to have some fictitious being or mythical creature in her ear, I would have rather seen a CGI dragon than this witch. I mean, I don't, I don't understand it. I mean... Mulan is already such a strong female character. I we we didn't need two. This didn't have to be a woman versus woman conflict. It didn't have to be girl power. Let's rally together to take down Bori Khan, which is sort of where they go with it, but not enough. Right, because the whole premise of Mulan is is that a woman can step step up and and do everything a man can. You don't need this mix between Tonto from Disney's Lone Ranger and Moira Rose from The Crows Have Eyes and put them together and get this character because that's what she looks like. No, But as cool as the aesthetic is because her costuming is beautiful and I love what they did turning her hands into claws, we still didn't need it especially because this film and you know you mentioned the controversy before that they were trying to be culturally accurate they were also trying to be more accurate to the ballad of mulan poem which is what the animation was was inspired by um so 
I get the introduction of the Bori Khan character because that was true to what was happening in China at the time that Mulan was supposed to take place. But I feel like this just... I mean, you are trying to be more serious. Why do we have this this witch that's transforming into a hawk and telling everyone what to do? Like, there's already enough conflict. You don't need a puppet master. You don't need the the higher villain to report to. She doesn't need henchmen to carry this out. Correct. Now, let me, and I, I'm glad you bring that up because I wanted to bring this up. At points, she's no longer a lost soul. This was her whole thing. She was a lost soul. She was an outcast. And Bora Khan brought her in. And he accepted her. But the thing is, she knew how powerful she was then. She almost becomes so powerful to the point that she doesn't need him to be in control. Right. So that, I think, is a major flaw. Now... I think a movie that did it very well, I haven't brought up Batman in a while. Oh, God. The Dark Knight Rises. Bane is a very powerful figure. Physically menacing and good on camera. He's a good speaker, and he can manipulate people. But Talia al Ghul is the puppet master because she is the brains behind everything that's going He's the brute strength, and he does preach, and he does practice what he preaches, but she puts those ideas in his head, and they do come together romantically in many ways as well, but they come together to take down Gotham. Bane without her doesn't work. She on her own doesn't work without Bane. I don't see... This witch needing Borakon. I think it would have made for a better story, still unnecessary, but it would have made for a better story if she used him for what he was good for. And she got to the point of, you know what, I'm so powerful, I don't need you anymore. And she eliminates him. That makes a better story, and then you make her the villain. If you, in fact, needed her to be the villain. Because otherwise, I feel like she's just soaking wet at the end of this. You know, it's just beyond watered down that you took this very strong character, gave her a puppet master that she exceeds in terms of power and strength and intelligence, but continues to keep going back to him. It it just does not make any sense. No, I mean, you don't need a brains and a muscle here, especially if you're trying to root this in fact um, but then also at the end, she flips to Mulan's side and ends up helping her. The whole and and then you water Mulan down even further because the whole thing is now she's been on this entire journey. She has embraced who she is. She has proven herself to everyone. She can handle this by herself. And even though she does sort of shun the witch. At first, at the first time the witch pitches her to team up. Now I feel like she's she's Dorothy. Uh, True. <laughs> um, she she rejects her the first time. They meet up again at the end, and then it, she kind of helps Mulan over the finish line. Eh. I think it undoes the character. 
I think it was sort of predictable and undid the character. Especially because even with all of the changes, like I had said before, the the not cutting the hair does sort of pay off because the entire time she's wrestling with being loyal, brave, and true. And I want to dial it back because yes. we sort of jumped ahead to the end, but I do want to talk about the training camp. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, you, you lose the humor, and to me that wasn't worth it, but it did make the character a bit more interesting to be on this journey of figuring out who she was and struggling with that all through training camp. Um, here's the thing. I miss the song. We know this. I know that you could care less. But what bothers me is that even though they eliminate it, they try to pepper in the lyrics all throughout this training camp and pass it off as the humor. I don't think it works. I like that we still have the gang of three element where you have people that are supporting Mulan and you get the camaraderie, which I think is very important. And that that does pay off in the battle sequences because, you know, they have that big conversation about we're going to fight for each other. And that's what's going to get us through this because you do have that that strong bond between them. So I think that that was all well done. Um, I even can live with. Li Shang being split into two characters, how you have the commander as sort of her mentor that knew her father and is encouraging her through this. Um, I think you try and get a little bit of humor unnecessarily when he wants to set her up with his son, obviously not knowing that it's really a woman. The second part of Li Shang is Hung Wei, who is her rival, basically. I don't think you needed that. I don't think you needed that. I think this is where the movie should really start to take off. Visually, it does. And and I'm just going to throw it out there and say, again, it's beautifully shot. But that's, and I'm not going to bring it up again because I can say that over and over again because if I'm being honest with you, by and large, the only positive I have from this movie is it looks great. Okay, but it's not good enough. It starts falling apart here, I think, with some of the dialogue. They kind of try to give a wink and a nod. We're going to make men out of every single one of you. I don't care what she looks like. I care what she cooks like. Or, I came here to be alone. And he jumps in the water and swims right up to her anyway. Like, I don't know what was unclear about I came here to be alone. And she is kind of trying to come off as the recluse. I don't know how many times they needed to tell her and remind her that she needs to shower. It, like just a lot of the dialogue here gets sloppy and it's kind of dumb. And this is where the movie really starts to let me down because whereas I don't like the original, I thought at least in this remake here, this is where the movie's really going to start gaining some traction for me and where I'm really going to start to love these characters the way that people love them in the original film. Right, because you are building your band of brothers. And that should have been something I think that was more relatable. Um, I think this sequence in training camp, this film actually does 
a better job of setting up the consequences for lying because we do see somebody get kicked out of camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that it gives it a lot more levity in that sense because, again, at this point in the animation, Mulan knows what the what the consequences are and she decided to go anyway. Here, she decided to go to save her father and it's, uh-oh, yeah, exactly. What's going to happen? You knew in the animated one that this was going to happen. Yep. Now, I feel like it's trying to create a suspense that we don't really need because you you already went. And that's where, as much as I like her inter- internal struggle with the truth, it's kind of like, I mean, you you do need it. That's what's giving her her struggle. You do sort of need her to be very fearful of the consequences. But... I feel like it's more powerful when she knew what they were and she decided to do it anyway. Um, To circle back to what you said, because you keep you brought up the bathing. uh, I I think that that was tantamount to the Ghostbusters wonton soup joke in in the in the new one, the the film that we we don't speak of. The female Ghostbusters. Yes. Yeah, when you when you just take something and you beat it to death over and when it when it's not really fun when it's like almost kind of funny the first time and you do it again and it's less funny and then you do it again and now it's not funny at all and you're just annoyed by hearing it again right because the way that they pull it off in the animation it happens once and then she goes to bathe and it becomes this huge issue because she's almost found out that's where the humor comes in and it's something where it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't really think of that. Like, how how is she hiding that this is a big thing that she has to conceal? But because you're watching an animated film, you're not thinking about the realism of I need to bathe or, or right. she would need to bathe. How How is she going to handle that? And then you see it, but it's done. The timing is perfect and it, it ends up being very funny. Here, they bring it up like three times and then it's such a big deal that by the time she does it and then he interrupts her, it, I'm just rolling my eyes. You don't need it. And you didn't need that moment between them because then they fight it out anyway. Yeah. The- and that's a better sequence to me when her chi is exposed. Yeah, because the two of them just kind of come off like they're jilted lovers the entire time, right? Like there's just, there's some sort of awkwardness with their relationship that I can't quite put my finger on because they don't quite come off as rivals the way that I think they're supposed to. Is what I'm saying making sense? Like there's just something awkward about their relationship. Yeah, because in the animation, Lee Shang sort of takes ping under his wing. We're not ping anymore. We're not ping anymore. Yeah, no, and that was a miss for me too. Um but it's established that he likes him and he just sort of gravitates to him and he doesn't really know why and that there's just a friendship there. Here, there's really a rivalry for no reason. They do try to acknowledge it in the skinny dipping scene where he says, you don't have to like me, but we have to be equals. We have to fight for each other. Right. Um. But I, I feel like that was unnecessary. I would have rather seen more of an awkwardness of, of him gravitating to Mulan 
and and maybe starting to struggle with that of like why am I attracted to this person and I don't mean it even in a romantic way but I think that they could have played up on the you know what is it about him or her that right. that I just connect with yeah there's something different about this person and I can't quite put my finger on it because there are times where they have conversations that seem very heartfelt and within three minutes all of that is out the window and they're fighting again and I mean they're fighting from the minute they get to their training camp so like it's the whole thing to me never really gets fleshed out properly and I think it's sort of set up very poorly from the jump right and then when it ends because this is almost like a whole act when they're at training camp it does go on for for a pretty long time but when it ends uh, the whole thing where they're supposed to reach the summit carrying two buckets of water. Uh, no one can do it except for Mulan. Uh, and we all knew that was going to happen, obviously, because in the animation she makes it to the top of the pole. That was supposed to be... And, and that was also something that you lost, too, in this scene, is that it wasn't... Because she didn't match them in physical strength, it was her wit that got her through and her cleverness completely out the window. Here... She's just showing brute strength that she can do what everybody else couldn't. What bothers me is that when she finally reaches the summit, you get reflection. Do I think she needs to burst out into song at this point? No, but you get the melody. And what bothers me about that is I don't know that it works for this scene because she just achieved this huge feat. It should be so much more cinematic. And I feel like maybe a little bit stronger of a song and a little bit bigger of a sound, but because you've assumed that we've seen the animation, which you can't because you're making your own film. Now they just trickle in this thread of the melody of reflection and I get that you're trying to do something that the fans will appreciate, but it does not work here. I disagree. Because I think that if they would have gone for this big, theatrical, harmonious, whatever you want to call it, this bombastic scene, this victorious scene, I think it would have really cheesed it up. And I think that while it would have made fans of the original film very happy, I don't think it would have fit the overall tone that they were going for here. I, I, I'll, it would have been too princessy for them to do that here because I think what they're trying to do is make this... It's a coming-of-age film. It's a defy-the-odds film, but it, it is being shot and shown in sort of that traditional kung fu, crouching tiger, hidden dragon sort of way, I don't know that you could really put that song in there without it really hurting the overall feel of the film, worse than the feel of the film has already been hurt. Well, I guess that's it. That's my issue with it, it is because this is the moment where she cuts off her hair. This is when she realizes that she can do this. And she she really does embrace who she is. There, there is a scene that we'll talk about in a few minutes that I think is her scene. And it's only one line. We'll talk about it in a few minutes here. And I think that that's where they tried to go for it. And for me, it's where it worked. And I think you will likely disagree. But let's talk about 
some of the battle scenes here. When they really start to go into battle, these scenes are solid. Oh my God, they're incredible. The way that they're shot, I think the action, the CGI, I mean, the stunt work, incredible. These scenes are some of the strongest scenes in the film. I agree. I mean, we talked about it in when we reviewed the animated film that this was the first time Disney used computer animation to create a scene like this. And they they used the computer to create, I forget how many thousands of soldiers coming over the, the hill. So I appreciate that they tried to capture that same thing with a huge amount of back background extras and that they didn't go for CGI and they tried to do everything as authentic as possible. Um, and it, and it's, it was quite an undertaking because not only are you working with animals, you had, you had to train all of the actors to ride horses. Um, but the, where they were shooting, I thought this was kind of interesting. First of all, they shot some of this in China and some of this in New Zealand the battle sequence and the training camp happened to take place in the same valley in New Zealand. Uh, they were just a couple of miles apart. The crew basically took over this whole valley area to set up production. Uh, so they had the battle going on while you had a second unit crew shooting the training camp for all of the secondary characters and all of the uh you know, the background characters in yeah. the training camp sequence. So they spent, I think it was four weeks for six days a week doing both of those scenes back to back. Well, it saves time and, and money, right? Because you've already got the crew there. Um, and if you can shoot one and shoot the other and get it done simultaneously. And I'm sure that, you know, part of it is you're working in different hemispheres. I mean, you're up against a very, uh, you know, grueling shooting schedule. So I, I sort of understand why they are splitting their time. Perhaps that's what made it appealing. I mean, you could have fooled me. I, I mean, I thought the whole thing was shot in China. I mean, it was totally worth it because it looks absolutely incredible. And that was something that I was wondering too, was how are they going to do, because it is such a big moment for Mulan too, where she outwits the enemy and causes the avalanche. Uh, so I like that we still got that here in a way. Yeah. What I don't like is her quote unquote Mulan moment that I think they were going for where she strips her armor off. And then you talked about it before, letting the hair down with the immaculate curls. Somebody Give in a battlefield break. who hasn't properly bathed, and we know this because they've asked her seven times to take a damn shower, with these beautiful immaculate curls in the slow motion on the horse, running into this battle without any armor on is insane. I mean, she has it. She has like a, a skirt. She has the bottom half, but she takes off the top. And I, I don't care how good a fighter you think you are, man or woman, you, you should have the top armor on. Absolutely. And she's clean. That's the other thing. Other than the fact that her hair is perfect, there is not but a speck of dust or dirt on her face. And I think that that was a big miss, too, with the training camp, because I think that that was sort of a cheap way that they tried to differentiate Mulan from Wajun was it's not just the hair up is that, you know, 
they they put dirt all over her face and that was something that I was curious about because in the animated one I had talked about that I think there were maybe two different animators on Mulan and Ping because Ping I feel like they did change up the eyebrows and angled the jaw a little bit I realized the audience the audience still needs to know that this is Mulan but I don't think that the actress looks androgynous enough to work for both. And I feel like that was sort of a cheap solution was to just put dirt on her face whenever she was posing as male. And especially, I mean, if, if that was all serving to this big moment when it's, you know, fighting glamour shots, it, it just, again, this is what cheapens this film as a whole correct and i think that her mulan moment for lack of better term yeah your trailer moment comes your money shot oh no 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 i'm talking i don't care about the the, don't don't, i don't care about a pretty shot i'm talking about the character her moment to me in this film is when she exposes herself with the long hair and they basically tell her, you know, it's it's uh, expulsion, disgrace, disgrace upon your uh. family, disgrace upon your village. And she says, I would rather be executed. That's the best yeah. line in the movie. It's the most, quote unquote, Mulan thing to say. And it would have sounded better coming out of the animated character than coming out of her. Because I don't feel like you said she did this for herself. She did it to save her father, which I guess in a way is doing it for yourself. But because you've watered down the character so much, I feel like this is the best line in the movie. This is her moment. And I don't feel it's being delivered in the proper portrayal of this character. Right, because I thought you were talking about her Mulan moment when she goes into battle in slow motion, which, by the way, is weakened down even worse because we are held by the hand into that moment by this narration from the witch that says Wajun is dead, but Mulan lived on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's an insult to the audience's intelligence. Really, we didn't need it. And yes, I think that they were trying to give her this big moment because now is when you have your cinematic music. You want to talk about a cheat moment. But that one is far better when she says, I'd rather die. Yep. I think that's the character. That's the character. Especially too, because they told her, well, no, this is in the next scene. I'm sorry. When she goes back to warn the commander about the attack on the Imperial City. He's already threatened her life. He he basically acknowledged, and this was kind of something that bothered me a little bit. The rest of her battalion has already realized that she saved all of them. And the commander, I get that he's in a different position. He's in a position of authority. But instead of appreciating what she did, he's still so adverse to accepting a woman. And he lets her go, but says, if you come back then we are going to, we're going to execute you. The pacing of the movie was good. And then you got to this part. The final act of this movie drags on and on 
and on. And I don't quite understand why. I think a little bit of that has to do with the back and forth, but I actually really like her final battle with Bori Khan. Um, I think that it's got a certain Pirates of the Caribbean feel with the whimsy of them sort of, you know, swinging around the bamboo. Mm -hmm. I think, again, nice hat tip to the Kung Fu films. Um, And even though the witch came back to help her, like, she does do this all on her own. Um, Is the sword falling into the fire a bit heavy-handed? As far as like the she, symbolism goes, it yeah. It looks like she threw it, by the way. Yeah. It looks like she threw it. Um, that I don't like, but I sort of like that the emperor doesn't even care who's there to save him. He He's encouraging her the entire time uh, in, in a sort of mentor type of way. Um, Side note, uh, second film this month where I'm a mighty warrior got used in a film. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's two in a row for us, actually. We just did Onward last week. And I, maybe that's why it comes off so cheesy here. Right, because it literally is the same line. Yeah, and I can only hear it coming out of the mouth of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Which is really <laughs> funny, too, because if these films had been, if this had been released theatrically. They would have been right on top back of to each back. other. Same thing, back to back. Um, I'm a mighty March release. <laughs> Um, no, but despite all of that, I think it's pretty solid, um, albeit a little bit long. Here's the thing. The Emperor, as Borakan falls to what should be his death, and you get that last moment of, with my last breath of life, I will try to kill this person. He is able to catch an arrow that is being shot at him, inches from his face. And then he has Mulan kick an arrow at Bori Khan, who can't catch it. How do you not? How are you lack the capability of catching an arrow that was kicked at you? I understand that they were trying to make good on when she let loose on her chi in the training sequences, right? But my God. How hard can you realistically kick that arrow? Remember something now. This is no longer the animated version. It's just too much. That one person can catch an arrow shot from a bow and one person can't catch an arrow kicked by a toe. (laughs) Catching the arrow, I'll suspend disbelief for. But kicking it, especially, and I'm no physicist, but when you think about shooting an arrow, you have to pull back on the thing to give it the forward motion energy. I don't buy the kick. No, not by any stretch of the imagination. And the other thing is you have this, I mean, the the city is absolutely beautiful. And they made it look so nice. I can even get over the fact that they didn't shoot it at night, which was something I loved about the animated one because you've got the fireworks and everything looks so pretty. Uh, But you go to the outskirts of the city where they're supposedly building a new temple. And okay, fine. I I get it. You needed the bamboo shoots. You needed to give her something to fight with once you lost the sword. But that was a 
big miss of, of having a really nice battle take place. I mean, and that's also probably why this feels so long, too, because the commander does. And I do like this moment. Uh, he tells the battalion, whatever it takes, get her through to the emperor. So you do see them fighting alongside of her. You do have the battle where the battalion and your your other main characters are their arc is complete because they're helping her through. Um, would I have liked to see them in the geisha makeup to break in? Yeah. I think, I think if you wanted to bring the humor a little bit further, that to me is the biggest payoff in the animation. I think it's one of the funniest parts and it's, it's also, it, it shows the bond. It pays off on the bond that they've built. I get it. You don't need it. It's fine that it's not here. This movie should not be funny. It's not supposed to be funny. But it didn't have to be because the whole point of it is that you you're you're gender bending the entire movie. I understand that, but you didn't need funny in this movie. So I, I I'm saying like I get for for you and for the Mulan purists where that's a miss, but to me. Those types of sacrifices, along with not making it a musical and not having Mushi, you know, all the things that everybody else was really upset about. I sit here and say, this all makes sense that none of it's here. You said Mulan purists. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny. Okay. Uh, we get to the end of the movie. She's offered a position as an officer in the Emperor's army. Okay, fine. She doesn't take it, but they beg her to reconsider. And now the movie's over. Well, well, they go back to the village. She makes amends with her family, and then they bring her the sword. Yeah, beg her to reconsider. I actually like that it ends that way. So do I. Um, because you, you, I mean, you had to do something about her family. We needed to see that they they were aware of what was going on and that they knew she she wasn't dead. Um, so. I'm glad that they did bring it full circle back to the village as opposed to her family coming out to this big elaborate ceremony and, and f you know, taking part in the accolades and, and sort of reaping the benefits of what she had done. So um, I think it was a better move to go back to the village. Um, and I like the sword and I, I like the message at the end of it. You know what my favorite part about the ending of this movie was? That it was over. Bingo. Uh, you got anything else, or are we going right into our final thoughts here? No, I think we covered everything. You want to go first, or you want me to go? You can go. Okay. I love the Shanghai Disneyland castle at the beginning of the movie. Yes, well done. Yeah, that, yeah then that's it. <laughs> um, I mean, look, and anything I tell you is a rehash. Costumes are great, stunts are great, beautiful cinematography, blah, 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 blah. I like the dad. I think that he's a pretty good balance of serious and cheesy. I don't think they did enough with him past that. Um, I think that this movie falls victim to not doing enough with any of your characters and the things that you do focus on don't do them any justice. I think the music is great. Um, and I think this is the second worst live-action remake that Disney has done. Wow. To the point where... Movies like this are why, after they get through stuff that's already under production or in production, you got to stop. You've got to stop. This is, this is an example of, 
you took something, you, you tried to one-up it, I think, uh, you, you tried to modernize it, it doesn't work. And, and I think that you're starting to see, when they did it with Maleficent, it was like, oh wow, this is really cool, and seeing the other side. And they did it with Cinderella, and it was so well done. Beauty and the Beast, we haven't talked about it yet, but we are going to later this year. That is the by far the worst of the live-action remakes. I don't think this is much better. And quite honestly, you have a lot of polarizing opinions when it comes to Aladdin and Lion King. We both liked them. I think Lady and the Tramp was awesome as a live-action remake. You've got Cruella coming out. But see, to me, Cruella's... It's a live-action film, but it's about a character. It's no different than Maleficent, right? I know you've got uh, A Little Mermaid coming out, but, but these need to stop. I think if Little Mermaid is a bomb, as bad as this or Beauty and the Beast were, I think that will be the end of the live-action remakes, and no one will miss them. Wow. Um, so suffice it to say, Sean is happy that we didn't pay $30 for this. Yep. Uh, as am I. Although, I have to say, this does get better and better every time that I watch it. I was totally with you the first time we saw it. I thought it was absolutely terrible. I was like, thank goodness we didn't pay for it. Um, but the more that I have seen it, and I don't know if that was because I was watching it with so much more of a critical eye for our review, but the more I I see it, the more I like it. Does that mean I'm going to rewatch it? Probably not a whole bunch. I may revisit it down the road. As far as the live action remakes go, is it their best? I agree with you. It's certainly not. But I don't think that it is the bad film that I initially thought that it was. Um, once you get past the major changes that they made to the story, uh, really, aside from The Witch... Everything does work to serve this version of the film. I think the witch is what makes it bad. Um, I think that where it does get cheesy is where they tried too much to give you the wink and the nod to the animation. Um, and I do think that the character is definitely weakened down, which you can't do when she's the title character of this film. But there are certain things that they changed that I do think work. To touch on what you said, though, about the live action remakes as a whole, um, they're definitely forced. And the more that they do, the more they're forcing them. Because in this case... I had mentioned before that they they took a year to cast Mulan and they started the search in 2016. When they were casting her, the script was still being written and the location scouting was starting already. So that's the mark of we are working toward a release and we are working towards a deadline and everything gets rushed. And it's the worst thing that you can do to a creative medium like this. Just finish the script first, get it right, 
don't give such a harsh deadline. If something's not working, like obviously you're going to keep rewriting as you're filming and figure out what will make it work. But the fact that they started doing everything in tandem is a recipe for disaster. I mean, look no further than The Green Lantern with Ryan Reynolds. There you go. Okay. That is a movie that Ryan Reynolds said they did not have a script when he took the role and he regretted it. He said, I took a role based on a movie poster. And I kind of feel like that's the same thing that happened here. You had a poster and that's all that you had. Or not even a poster. It was that somebody is sitting there saying, well, we're redoing all of them as live actions. You know, let's let's just go with this. Mulan's a big name. Let's rush it out. And, you know, when you think about it, this really started. I mean, you had Cinderella done. That was like, what, 2015? But once they really started rolling, 2017, Beauty and the Beast, it was like boom, boom, boom. Everything started coming out after it. And And, yeah, you got to be careful with things like that. But look at Maleficent and look at Cinderella. They are so good because they weren't rushing to get them out once a year. The quality, for the most part, of these live action remakes has taken a nosedive since they've decided they've got to get one out a year. And Maleficent was a story worth telling. See, to me, that's an idea, a good idea that got pitched and then got greenlit because it was something different. It wasn't, we have to remake Sleeping Beauty. What are we doing? Right. The second one, don't even get me started. Oh, it's awful. But if there was a film that I was dreading reviewing more than this, it's Maleficent 2. And maybe A Wrinkle in Time. They're both pretty horrendous. But I thankfully... For the next couple of weeks now, we got a roulette coming up, so I don't know what we got. Uh, that could that could go any which way. That could be Black Panther, which we've hit in a roulette. That could be the Cat from Outer Space. That could be Escape to Witch Mountain. That could be the Prince and the Pauper. That could be anything. But I think for the most part, we've got a lot of good movies slated that we're going to talk about this year. And right now, as far as I know, unless we hit it in a roulette, We're not going to touch Maleficent 2 for a while. (laughs) So I think, unless it hits in a roulette, I think we're safe. But I want to know what you guys have to say about Mulan. Did you pay the $30 for it? Do you regret it now? Are you glad you waited? Do you like it more than the original? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. And if you did pay for it, we're not going to bite your head off. Don't worry. No. But I'm also not going to refund you like George Clooney does if you tell him that you've seen Batman and Robin in theaters and he'll literally reach into his pocket and give you a $10 bill and say, I'm sorry. He actually does do that. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to go over news of the week. So stick around for just a moment. Hey, everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney. And when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. Jackie was able to beat 
the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money. But she has the insight and the connections to do so. On top of that, it was stress-free. So all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do, what my plans are for that week when I go visit Disney and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. Myself, I go into a park, I immediately hop on the next line, I get a few fast passes, and at the end of the day, I don't accomplish everything like I would want to. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Way to go, Monoreal. Keep it going. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. So some big news this week for the parks. And you want to talk about something that's polarizing because the last hour and a half hasn't been polarizing enough. The annual pass program at Disney parks, at least domestically, as you once knew it, appears to be over. Disneyland is not selling annual passes right now for a multitude of reasons I don't need to get into. But now... If you are an AP at Walt Disney World in Orlando, if you have an existing annual pass, you can renew it. You can't let it lapse, but you can renew it. However, they are not selling new annual passes. And that kind of has people in a tizzy. Now, let me just go out there and say, there were people that thought, that Disney was going to end annual passes forever and make you pay at the gate every time you went. That read would be, the article, don't just read the headline. That would be that that would be a critical error. A critical error for Disney. The fact that you could believe that without reading a story, how do you think Disney would ever go and do that because I know people think of it as a vacation destination. The city of Orlando exists because of Walt Disney World, and a lot of people that live there live there for Walt Disney World. I, th- I don't think people appreciate the amount of annual pass holders that there are between people that live in Orlando, people that have DVC, people that have second homes and they use it when they snowbird and they bring their grandchildren. Disney has an immense amount of annual pass holders. It would be a financial disaster, a corporate disaster, to alienate those people that are there for you every year because there are people that go every day and there are people that go once a month and then there are people that buy it because they're DVC members and end up not being able to go. Yeah, an annual pass at times is as good as a gift certificate because it's money in the bank. It's money you know you have coming to you. Given the financial situation that Disney is in due to what has happened over the course of the last year, they would never undo annual passes 
in totality. Now, if you read the article, like you pointed out, they are restructuring their PASS program to meet the current demands of the Disney audience. A lot of that, I do believe, has been driven by what we are still going through right now. People are not traveling as much. People don't have disposable income the way that they did. Because remember something, if you were a Florida resident, you had the benefit of paying for your annual pass monthly. If you were not a Florida resident, you had to pay, as our friends in Mary Poppins Returns would say, in full. So if you're a family of four that has DVC and you want a platinum pass, you're forking over about $4,000 up front to re-up. That is a massive amount of money, and a lot of people can't take that undertaking on. Now, I will say, and I've said it before, and, and I know a lot of you out there are saying it's comparing apples and oranges, and in many ways it is, but I think at the root of it, it's all very much the same. I have been a pass holder with six flags for the better part now of six years. And what I love about that is I pay monthly, number one. And number two, they give you so many different levels to choose from that there is literally a package there for everyone. Now, I'm not insinuating that Disney will be as cheap as Six Flags. It's not. It's still going to be a large chunk of change. But I think that they will be able to structure membership packages so that it is more inviting for people. And I think it's also a way of bringing people in right now that maybe financially can't take on the burden that they once could with a traditional Disney annual pass. I think that this is a pivot. I don't think that this is a permanent decision. I think that this is purely based on attendance right now. I think part of the issue that you're having is that people are cooped up and they are starting to want to travel again. So what happens if you're filling the capacity with APs? Now you have somebody that booked a hotel that's getting very upset that they can't get into the parks or vice versa. Around the holidays, a lot of people started traveling from out of state again, and they they wanted to go to their happy place. They wanted to get out of the bubble and and go into the happy bubble, if yeah. you will. Yeah. So now you're shutting out your APs, and what are you? Gonna, I I think that this is their way of finding balance. Do I think that the APs are ever going to go away completely? No, they they'd be stupid. But I think what we might see for the time being is maybe sort of a monthly fee and you'll still get all of the benefits of the annual pass. Here's what I think they're going to happen. And I do not like to speculate on this show, but I do want a written or in this case, a recorded record of my prediction as it stands today. Here's how I think this is going to go. I think there will be a number of different levels of membership that you will buy not unlike what you have right now with annual passes. I think they will have a base entry-level pass. They may even offer them park by park. There may be a Magic Kingdom-only pass. There may be an Epcot-only pass. 
We know they've done Epcot after four before. They may offer that at each individual park as a base level ticket because maybe some people only go to Hollywood Studios to go ride Rise of the Resistance after work. Maybe people only go to Magic Kingdom because they want to put their kids on Seven Dwarves Mine Train after school and after work. And that's what works for them. Or you're visiting, if, if you have people in town and you want to go visit them, you can go on the second half of their park day. So I think, I think that that is probably what will be something to that effect as an entry-level ticket, or perhaps it's all four parks after 4 o'clock. I think from there, it bumps up to a full day. From there, it bumps up to a full day plus perhaps discounted parking or discounted merchandise, say 10%. You got to do discounted parking if you're going to get rid of Magical Express, which is another thing. We'll put a pin in that. You bump that up again. Now maybe parking is included. And I think with every level, there's more incentive. I think your reservation window expands the more you pay. Less blackout dates the more that you pay. You know, not unlike what you have now. But there will be enough of a variety where I think almost anybody will be able to afford to experience Disney at least to a certain extent. I think that's how they're going to do this. And I do think it is going to be a monthly payment program. And I think that that's the fairest way to go about it because they're allowing you to customize your experience, really, because it's not fair to set one flat rate where, you know, if you're an AP and you can go down several times a year and you don't live in Florida, you know, you're going to use it differently than a Florida resident who, yes, of course, is going to get certain Florida resident discounts, but it's not fair to lock somebody from the Midwest into the same deal that you're giving as somebody who can literally go every weekend. Yeah. The other thing now is there is a lot of competition in the yeah. state of Florida. Mm-hmm. It's Remember, Disney was the first to do it, really, to do it big. But people talk about how much more expensive it is to be a Disney annual pass holder versus go down the road to Universal. I mean, Universal's nowhere as good as Disney, in my opinion. Oh, they took a big shot, by the way, on Twitter. They put a picture up of their annual pass and they were like, we love you and we would never uh, we would never take this away or something like that. But that's my point, though. It's a lot less to begin with. Yeah. But you've got two parks there, plus a water park, plus city works or city walk. You're adding another gate. You've got a ton of people that want to see all the Harry Potter stuff. You've got SeaWorld, which is now adding roller coasters. You've got Legoland in Lakeland. If you wanted to drive an hour and a half down I-4 and go get thrills, you can go to Busch Gardens. And I have been a Busch Gardens Tampa season pass holder, albeit it was 15 years ago. But when I was down there, I had a season pass, and I got it at Publix. I bought my season pass for Busch Gardens at Publix for $65 for a year. There is just so much competition right now People, for the first time in a long time, perhaps for the first time in forever, are starting to, they're starting to weigh their options. Yeah. Disney has to pivot. And I think this is a smart way of doing it. I think that by the summertime, 
once the vaccines made its way around and once people now are out of school and they have more time to kill, I think that's when you're going to see these new annual passes roll out. I think you've got new attractions opening this year. I think that they're going to use all of that and the appeal of, hey, we're opening three new attractions this year, and oh, guess, well, you're out of school, and oh, we're feeling good right now, and the vaccine's going around. Hey, guess what? It's time to come back and look at what we're willing to offer you. It's not $1,000 a person out of the gate now. Maybe it's $50 a month, and we can get you in the door for 50 bucks a month. That's when I think they're going to roll this out. If I'm taking a guess right now, that's what I think they're going to do, and I think that's how they're going to structure it. And the other thing is, come on, folks, it's Disney. When have they ever let us down? I realize that prices are hiking and I realize that people are not happy about it. But like they have never taken away something without giving it back. And it seems a little scary right now because everything is changing and nobody knows what's going on. And every company has had to pivot, but they'll make good on it. Right. It's like with Magical Express going away and people hit the ceiling. And I said, because well, when, they didn't read. <laughs> and I go, well, right. Well, when they announced, uh, you know, two months ago that they were getting a train, a railroad system that was going to run direct from MCO to Disney Springs. Did you really think that Magical Express was going to stick around? Of course not. No. And the other thing is that's that's a wonderful thing. It's greener. It's better for the environment. Um I hope it doesn't cost us more up front to cover it because that's probably another thing is that, yes, hotel prices are probably going to go up in order to cover the railroad. But, I mean, to me, I'd honestly rather, I think, get on a train. And this is one of very few instances where you hear me say that. But I'd, I'd rather get on a train, I think, than, than do the bus. There's probably more room to spread out. They can probably run it a little bit more frequently because that's the other thing. Let's, let's not forget before the pandemic, those Magical Expresses were running less frequently. They were waiting to fill them, and you had to start waiting a long time. When they first rolled that out, never waited more than 15 minutes. Yeah, I know. It was great. Now, if you go during peak time, you're going to have to wait a half hour to board. The last time we went, the last big Disney trip we took, I think we waited over an hour for a Magical Express. Right. But we were on the ground in Orlando for almost three hours before we got onto Disney property versus when we went in this past October and, and we went, we took a taxi. And did they railroad us on the cost? Yeah, they did. But guess what? We were on Disney property within 45 minutes of arriving at the airport. And at that point, see, here's the thing. I'm not looking at it as paying for transport because we could have still taken Magical Express complimentary. So I didn't pay for the car. I paid for my time. Right. I paid for another two hours. You know what? I think a lot of people, especially with ride sharing becoming such a, a big thing now, I think that's what people are starting to look at. Right. Yeah, it's great that I can get on this complimentary bus, bus but you know, for 60 bucks, 70 bucks, I can buy my time. And I'm not getting crammed on a bus, and I, I can be there quicker. The minute that they announced that that train was coming, you had to know that it was going away. If you didn't, you're fooling yourself. And you know what? You said it, buying time. That's going to be more important on your last day. I am actually very excited that there's going to be no more magically depressed. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, I do think they're going to have a coach system that will run from Disney Springs. I feel like they will still offer some sort of complimentary transport because at that point you are on property. I don't know where they're going to put it at Disney Springs. I mean, I kind of feel like that area is developed as far as you could take it, but it's Disney. They'll figure it out. They'll, they'll buy 50 acres next door and knock down a warehouse and be like, okay, here we are. We're ready to go. Um, but, I mean, listen, that's, that's the world that we're living in right now. I will not crucify them until I see what they roll out with next because I've made that mistake before going, how could you take away the backlot tour? And then you go to Galaxy's Edge. So as you said, they never, taking, they never take anything away without giving you something that is at least it's equal. More times than not, it's better. I don't think so in the case of the backlot tour in Galaxy's Edge. There I said it. Okay. Well, you can let us know what you know how you guys feel and does this affect you? Are you somebody that moved to to Orlando? I know one person that did move to Orlando and they moved down there in June and they were not able to get an annual pass and now they're kind of in a holding pattern. So, is this something that affects you negatively? Is this something that you think is actually a positive and you'll take advantage of it more. Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio or email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget, follow us on that social media. You can also like, subscribe, and review the show on your podcast platform of choice. And get ready, because next week, we're going back to the casino for Monoreal Radio Roulette. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.